0: Hi, I'm Jason Kelly, And
1: I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast.
0: This week, we bring you highlights from our trip to the Milken Institute Global Conference in Los Angeles.
1: And it was all about driving shared prosperity and folks from all walks of life, all different types of industries, having really, really smart conversations, getting into complicated subjects. We also hear from some of the biggest names in business, politics, and finance.
0: Well, and where else, apparently, are you going to run into Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone, <laughs> Bruce Flatt from Brookfield, Bob Dunn- from BP, but also The Edge, Laura Dern. (laughs) We talked to all of them.
1: It's like the dream cocktail party, and we were there. First up, though, Jason, we spoke with Oak Tree Capital co-chairman Howard Marks.
0: You are well-known in the world as someone who knows just about everything about credit and distress. Is there any distress in the world right now?
2: There is distress mostly outside the U.S. Well, there's some in the U.S., uh, retail is in distress, some energy is in distress with low energy prices. Yeah. Uh, outside the US, it's a more widespread, less shotgun. Um, you know, there are some NPLs in in uh, European banks, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, we buy some of those. And there's a big pile up, of course, of NPLs in China. Yeah. And uh, and we're uh, we're looking at those.
1: You are looking at them, but not buying yet. No, we're investing. We're
2: we're buying. We have uh, close to four years of experience doing it. We we concluded four years ago that it was very important to start building the experience. You know, you can't go into a market when it becomes propitious without some background. So uh, clearly, you have to build the experience in advance.
1: How do you see China, especially with the backdrop of I feel like the tensions between the United States and China, certainly not new, we've seen them through several administrations, but how do you view that, that political lens versus the investment lens?
2: Well, it's, it's uh, not easy. Um, but you know, the way I think of it, Carol, is that uh, Europe and uh, Japan are economic senior citizens. Mm-hmm. The US is a mature adult and China's an adolescent. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever had an adolescent in your house,
1: <laughs> I have one now. And I know Jason <laughs> has one,
2: then you know that there are, it's tempestuous, ups and downs, um, chaotic, but you also know that the adolescents' best decades are ahead. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, over the next 20 years, which is gonna grow faster, China or the US? Simple question, in my opinion. China will have rapid growth. Um, once in a while, there will be, you'll have some bad days. You might even have some bad years. Right. Once in a while, uh, there may be issues over uh, m- macro factors. But I think that, uh, you know, th- one of the largest economies in the world, uh, you can't ignore it. And so do you invest
0: differently there going forward in a more meaningful way, especially given now the place where you're going to have Oak Tree housed within uh Brookfield, uh, you guys are combining operations there. What is the opportunity? How big does the opportunity
2: get in China? The numbers are very big. Yeah. Everything in China is really big <laughs> in terms of numbers. Uh, we have been moving in cautiously. We will continue to do so, but we are amping up at this time.
1: I feel like there is such Howard animosity. Uh, certainly, I think there's a U.S. perspective of thinking China's the enemy. Uh, and they're certainly got their long-term you know, planning in terms of industries and how they want to be much more sophisticated, whether it's technology and AI and so on and so forth. And we look at that as a bad thing and we want to stop them from doing that, how do we get a better understanding of what's going on from China? You've I'm assuming been there, you've talked to various companies and investors. What, what are we missing and not understanding, maybe? Is there such animosity?
2: Well, I've never felt any animosity. I've been going there for about 10 years or so, and uh, more, I guess.
1: Is it competitive, though? Does China look at the U.S. as competitive and vice versa?
2: Certainly on a geopolitical stage uh, and w- within specific industries, I think. Um, that's the nature of business Uh, you know uh, everybody uh, competes it brings out the best of us and uh, uh, you know it's really interesting to be in China and look at China and think about how they integrate a a centrally controlled economy with free enterprise which they have a lot of and how do the two coexist Um, but uh, my latest memo talked about uh, some uh, reforms that took place in China uh, 40 years ago, uh, and it, it it created much more uh, emphasis on rewards and incentives. Um, and uh, uh, I think that uh, I think that uh, China is highly incentivized to work toward those right. rewards, even if not the whole economy is characterized by free enterprise.
0: I want to ask you about this notion that's out there that maybe the the markets are in what people are terming sort of a melt up you know that we're just sort of going and going and going along because there's nothing stopping it and valuations are getting
2: out of control what do you make of that argument i've been in this business 50 years jason i've heard it several times in the past um you know uh i think that the uh the, the best way to think about it is by understanding what I call the three stages of a bull market. The first stage, when only a few farsighted people understand that there could be improvement. The second stage, when most people see that there is improvement. And the third stage, when everybody and his brother thinks things will get better forever. Right. If you buy in the first stage, you pay bargain prices and, and you tend to make a lot of money. If you buy in the last stage, it's much more tricky. I think that when I hear the, uh, stories about perpetual prosperity and trees growing to the sky i tend to think we're in the last stage
0: that's howard marks the co-chairman of oak tree capital and of course one of the most followed names in finance his memos that he sends to his investors their must reads he's in the news of course with his combination mm-hmm. with brookfield that is one of the biggest deals from some of the biggest deal makers in the world.
1: Plays into asset managers getting bigger. We're seeing consolidation. But I always love to talk to somebody like Howard, who has seen lots of market cycles and really looks at things from a very smart and deep perspective.
0: And I thought his comments about China were especially timely. Mm -hmm. I was really glad we got into that as well. So, Carol, next up from Milken, I had a chance to sit down with the CEO of BP. That's Bob Dudley. He was coming off of earnings. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about continuing volatility in the oil market. And, of course, you can't talk about just about anything in the world without talking about how a tweet can change your business.
1: But rightfully so, Jason, you started by asking him about this quarter's earnings.
0: What was the key takeaway for you from earnings this quarter?
3: So this was our first quarter. Oil prices a little bit down. I think resilience in the earnings, bang on expectations. Uh, operations work very smoothly around the world. We have things that are down and off and long planned. So very, very pleased with the earnings and no real big surprises, but fine. Steady
0: as she goes.
4: Yes. Yeah.
3: One of the
0: things people are always interested in is your trading business. Mm -hmm. Uh, You give some details here and there. We got a little bit of details about natural gas. Tell us what was moving
3: there. Well, we did have a good quarter in the trading, both in uh, global oil trading and and natural gas. Uh, LNG prices were moving a bit. Of course, oil prices are very volatile. Right. Uh, You know, they've been three or four days down just on a tweet. Uh, We'll see. There is a lot of volatility in the oil markets right now. Everyone's waiting to see about the either extension or no extension of Iran waivers. I think the market isn't really sure, even though they said they won't be extended. If they are extended, I think you'll see the price of oil dip a bit. If they're not, you can see it drift up here.
0: And help us understand a little bit. I know it's pretty closely guarded how the trading operation works. Um, but what was driving especially the, the uh, success on the oil side?
3: Well, I think on the oil side is a position that was taken really by... By coming out of the, the the New Year's season that we thought that well, prices were going to tighten, yeah. all the data looked like that. If you remember, they remarkably dropped to about $50 a barrel and then come back stronger throughout the quarter. And I think that was part of the strength. No no special magic trade. It was just <laughs> we believed the price was going to tighten. Right.
0: And so let's talk about oil prices a little bit. As you say, they are highly susceptible to politics. They're highly susceptible to social media uh, platforms and and sentiment. How do you manage that?
3: Well, you can't you can't always get it right. I mean, you take it. We try to do it on the fundamentals long term rather than very short term reactions to things. We think fundamentally the, the markets are tight this year. You sit and look at. You know, what is unfolding this Venezuela defying economic gravity and reports of more violence in Libya. I mean, these things are, uh, approach the fundamentals and you look at the production growth of the Permian, but it's still bottleneck that won't be there forever. So it feels to us kind of tight right now.
0: And what's your biggest worry about oil prices as we go through the rest of 19?
3: 19. Well, uh, for, for us, we plan the company on $55 a barrel or a very narrow fairway for BP. Uh, I think if I worry about it longer term, not short term, longer term is we end up either with a spike or a drop, and and that's not good for the world, it's not good for planning. But right now, I think we will be in this fairway of 60 to 75, it looks like, for 2019. Talk to me about the integration of the BHP uh, assets. What are you learning there, especially about the, the U.S. shale market? Well, so BHP is a great company, great assets, great people. We only took over the operations on the first of March right. after the closing, so we're really early into it. Uh, we've got, you know, synergies that that'll happen. They'll happen very fast. We like the assets a lot. We're part of that checkerboarding in the in the Permian. I don't know if you've ever seen yeah. the, the old historical reason why uh, leases are are actually shaped like a checkerboard. And so we've got people in between us. I think down the road, there'll likely be some consolidation or swapping to make that a little bit more efficient. But we like the rocks. Uh, We've got a great team that's been working on natural gas in the U.S., and now they can turn themselves to uh, crude oil, which would be great and does
0: that consolidation come sooner rather than later? Is that something we see in the near term, like
3: this year, next year, when, when might that happen? It's a good question. I think uh, there's no need to rush it. Uh, it. I think it's just one of those things if you look at a, that big piece of geography out there, not just for us, that there will be rationalization right. coming on. So comp- you think
0: it will be competitive as, as you try and sort of figure out who's going to get the upper hand?
3: Well, I think, I think it'll. I, you know, you could have the industrial logic of companies just rationalize. You can do swaps. It yeah. doesn't even have to be m right. I can see that some people would see, pairs of companies would see a lot of value in that. And for us, it's also what we did with BHP with some other assets in the Eagleford and the Haynesville right next to where we were already producing gas. So it's a really nice extra piece of business for BP. And you'll see us divesting some of the gas assets that we had to make sure we we uh, return to shareholders right. some of the money that we put out.
0: Well, you anticipated my next question. Not surprisingly, those divestments, especially here in the U.S., how's that going? Is it the pace you want? What happens next?
3: So, again, no rush. We've had data, open, data rooms open now this year for a number of months now. And I can just say I'm very surprised at the number of companies and the interests are going through and kicking the tires and looking at the assets and the data. So... I think it, it bodes well for uh, whenever we decide.
0: And, and what, what do you owe that surprise to and, and where is the interest coming from? Help us understand that. It's
3: a real wide variety of interest in the buyer, buying set. It's uh, companies we know, some of the bigger companies. It's uh, some of the independents that we know. And then there's individuals, uh, essentially individuals, who have a lot of backing of cash. So private equity maybe, small private equity. So it's the whole spectrum. I
0: do wonder about the role that private equity plays here because it feels like uh, as an industry they've sort of been in and out Mm -hmm, of of the oil business, the the energy business. How do you see them both competitively and as a partner at this point?
3: Well, we see them, so not only here in the U.S., we we see private equity has moved into the the North Sea, the northern southern North Sea. In some cases they are buying established operators. In other cases they buy a percentage and are our partners. So we've got some very good private equity partners in the North Sea. Here in the U.S., I think it's, I think it sort of goes up and down a little bit with their sources of money. And when it's tight, it's less. And when money's, uh, easier, you see more of it. And it feels to be easier now. So, Mr. Buffett uh, plays into the broader conversation
0: with uh, his investment there uh, with Anadarko. Does that change your strategy? Does it change the landscape?
3: Well, it doesn't change our strategy. I, I think I was surprised, because um, you know for a number of years ago, Mr. Buffett wasn't uh, particularly interested in, in energy. It shows that he is, and I think that it's going to show the, the energy engine of the U.S. has really growing. and support for that. Um, he stepped in to help Occidental, which is a great company. The Anadarko assets are really good, whether it's for Occidental or Chevron, it's really good. So it right. really doesn't surprise me, this competition right. for
0: it. It's great to catch up. The biggest thing, just a couple seconds left, you learned from uh, hanging out here
3: at Milken. Well, this is a very different conference than the other ones. You've got We have investors from all around the West Coast and I'd say the Pacific Rim. Yeah. So for us, it's a chance to not only talk to partners existing shareholders, possibly new shareholders. And it's got a very broad uh, remit of subjects here, from health to uh, you know the new technologies. I've enjoyed it. That's BP
0: CEO Bob Dudley, and of course one of the most followed names in terms of how the oil market is going. Mm-hmm. It tells us so much about the global economy, investment, and politics. Well, if you're at Milken, you're in L.A., it makes sense to stop in and talk to the mayor of that city, Eric Garcetti. You know, he thought about running for president, Mm -hmm. very well-known politician, not just there in L.A., but around the globe.
5: It was great to
1: talk to Mayor Garcetti because, Jason, when I think about Los Angeles, I do think about them being at the crossroads of so many important issues, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's immigration, whether it's politics, whether it's food production, and a lot going on in this city. And we began by talking with him about a Green New Deal for los angeles he talked about what he had planned
0: you've got a big announcement a green new deal we talk about it on a national level yeah. you've got a plan for la tell us about it
6: well my simple message for folks in washington is while you're figuring it out and looking across the aisle don't worry about looking across the aisle look across the country and here in la actually four and a half years ago we launched a plan that was about the environment the economy and equity and now people have talked about a green new deal so we're updating it making stretch goals huge carbon neutral cities carbon neutral buildings uh, trash-free cities, 100% recycling of our water, and a uh, zero-carbon electricity grid. That now is time, and LA, I think, can be the place, while creating jobs. So it's economy and environment together.
0: All right, so how do you do it? Like, what's the first, what's the first step, and, and how soon do people really start to see results from this?
6: Well, we already held ourselves accountable a few years ago. So we, we reduced our carbon emissions in 2016 by 11%. I'd be challenged to find a city almost anywhere in the developed world that did that and our unemployment went down 14% that year. So it's conscious strategies for jobs. So looking for those green sector, energy jobs, solar installation, water technologies, and at the same time, going straight to the things that I own as a mayor that we collectively own. And we run the largest municipal utility in the country and we're transferring that not just off of coal, but now off of carbon itself. And then, of course, our transportation system and our buildings. Those three things, electricity, transportation, and buildings account for about 80% of all of our emissions.
0: So what pushback uh, are you getting? Because Green New Deal on a national level has uh, drawn some uh, maybe eye-rolling, maybe some criticism, maybe some skepticism uh, at the very least. What are you encountering?
6: At the local level, we don't really find that. And we want to put this out not just for L.A., but really as a green print for all cities in the country and around the world. I I chair climate mayors, which is 422 mayors, bipartisan group around the country. And I don't think we get caught up in those conversations because while people are talking about universal incomes and things like that, we know in LA, we created 35,000 green jobs. That's more than the country lost in coal jobs. Mm -hmm. So we know that we can create sectors in any city around this. um, And that kind of answers that middle class question of how do we have a place in the economy for our citizens in the future right. it's by embracing this stuff aggressively
0: well let's talk about that very topic because we think about it a lot in, in new york certainly all over the country affordability just of of the big cities got a lot of yes. people who want to come to a, a place like la we, you see it uh, every day i see it you know flying in and, and driving through uh, town yesterday how do you ensure yep. that this is a place where people can actually make a good living
6: and live. Well, you have to find what those jobs are. So for instance, I know New York's struggling with keeping up the subway and expanding it. We passed a measure that uh, will never sunset to build 15 new rapid transit lines. And we make sure those jobs go here locally. That's 787,000 jobs you can't export. They're middle class and you can keep them for an entire career, your lifetime. So I think it's thinking intelligently about these things, not just buying a little bit of solar power on the marketplace or uh, recycling a little bit more, but really building the economy around that, and that's what we're doing here in L.A.
0: And how do you fit it into the state's goals? You've got a a new governor, um, you know, you know pretty well. Doing a great job. Um, You know, he's had a job similar to you, a little, little bit further (laughs) upstate. That other Uh, city, smaller smaller town. (laughs) Um, But you know, how do? What do you need from the state in order to get this going and to ensure its success?
6: Well, I think cities often inspire the state policies. So we said we were going to be um, 100% renewable, and then the state passed that, so that 2045 is now the goal for all of California. Uh, When we started becoming a solar city. Now we're number one solar city in America. The state started to help subsidize that electric cars uh, and electrifying our transportation system. So usually cities are the laboratories. States are then the folks that can give it sort of volume. But a city as big as LA is essentially the size of a state. And so we hope to not just inspire California, but the rest of the country too.
0: And what about
6: traffic? Can we just talk about traffic <laughs> it's, for a it's, second? It's flowing right now. You <laughs> yeah, want the LA traffic report, but it yeah. happens to be midday. Yeah. You know, you know three things. One. Is technology yeah we have even in peak traffic in LA 92 percent of our streets don't have a car on them Wow so as we have autonomous vehicles or interconnected vehicles we can much better use that space without having to double-deck freeways at billions of dollars and decades long second is the public transportation system that I told you we're building out yeah and third is going to be building better communities LA in the past you didn't put the housing next to the jobs you didn't put the retail near the housing you didn't you know go out and worry about hitting five neighborhoods in one afternoon. New York, you don't look at crossing three boroughs just to go see a friend every day. So it's really about better zoning and planning. And we're completely redoing the city, um, especially around our transit corridors to be more dense and to put those jobs, those healthcare needs, everything all close to where you live.
0: And that's Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. You know, I got to see him in action a couple times during the conference. And man, he is smooth. He commands a room. Mm-hmm. Very impressive guy.
1: And it's a city and it's really a state that you always want to watch because of its size and its impact on the nation overall. So, one of the biggest names at Milken this year, no doubt about it, Jason, was Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman.
0: Well, Schwartzman, well known. His firm, especially well known, they've eclipsed a half a trillion dollars Staggering. in assets under management. It was great to sit down with him. I just seen him a couple of weeks earlier, actually, on earnings day. but. In this fast-moving world, Steve's always got something to talk about.
1: And Jason, you started, though, with Blackstone's conversion to a corporation. This was big news. We
0: talked a couple weeks ago about earnings, and the big news that day was your conversion to a corporation, which sounds a little wonky, and yet has been a really big deal for the stock, not just yours, but the rest of the industry. Why?
4: Well, I I think uh, in terms of ours, it makes good sense, because they're probably two to three times the number of people who could buy our stock who haven't been able to because we've been using uh, K-1 statements. So by getting rid of those and converting to the normal 1099, if we can take advantage of that huge additional buying power, logic should say that if more people want to buy you, your stock will go
0: up. And so what have people said to you in the aftermath? It's, as I said, it's been a couple weeks. I mean, are you hearing from a different class of investors? Is your phone ringing from different people?
4: Yes, it actually is. And people say, uh, thank goodness uh, you made that decision. Uh, we really want to own the stock. Can you come and see us? Uh, our stock's up 13 percent. Uh, in the last week and a half uh, since since I actually saw you so you have a certain magic uh, I should come on frequently anytime Uh, and the other firms uh, have gone up uh, as well not the same amount obviously but I I think it's uh, the market looking and saying if that worked for Blackstone Uh, Then probably the other firms will
0: follow. All right. So that's sort of the retail side of the business to to some extent and some institutions. What about your limited partners, the pensions, the sovereign wealth funds, the endowments? You talk to them all the time. A lot of them are here in Los Angeles for this conference. What's their biggest concern right now?
4: Well, I think the biggest concern are high prices uh, and and that's a valid uh, issue. Uh, but the high prices that you're going to have to pay for deals. Well, that everyone yeah. is paying as the result of markets uh, going up, uh, and and so that that that's a concern. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the alternative class, uh, private equity, real estate, uh, and and you know credit, uh, uh, has done so well uh, for these investors over very long periods of time that they're continue. Uh, to increase uh their allocations and, and that's that's certainly good news for us uh but but it's a time where you need a little more uh caution uh for investing uh than than when when prices are lower. And so as you look across the suite of products that you're
0: offering to investors, whether it's real estate, credit, hedge funds, private equity, is there one that seems to be drawing a disproportionate or a little bit more attention from the big institutions right now? I'm asking you to choose among your children, I know.
4: Well, but. that's a tough one. Yeah. You know, we love all our children uh, and all the funds sell out. So the bottom line uh, is that we've had uh, huge demand, uh, p- partly uh, uh, because we've done uh, so well for investors in every one of the classes. And the investors themselves have more money, if you will, yeah. uh, when, when markets go up, the size of their funds are bigger. Uh, So, I I, I think they're uh, biasing things to experienced managers in a higher price environment uh, to to, to basically protect capital uh, and do the right thing, uh, but also ride the cycle and be able to put money in at the right time.
0: So when you think about that appetite for all of these funds, they're selling out. You've talked about getting to a trillion dollars in just a few years in assets under management. You're more than halfway there uh, at this point. How much do you worry about getting too big that there's too much money that you have to put to work?
4: Well, you always worry about things like that. And the nice thing is you can do something about it. This isn't mandated. uh, And (laughs) you don't want money that you can't invest. Well, uh, our business has gone from no assets to the largest in the world, uh, and our asset class at $512 billion, because we're careful, uh, because we're prudent, because we understand we're playing a long game. Uh, And if we do poorly, uh, the only people who uh, remember that is everyone who gave us money. Uh, And so we only want them to have a good ride Uh, And and so, it's up to us uh, not to have too much money in any strategy. What we tend to do, Jason, uh, is is expand not by making one fund gargantuan. Uh, We we do it uh, by inventing other strategies or or going into areas we haven't where we think the investments are very good, so we're looking at uh, growth buyouts. Mm -hmm. uh, now are, are growth investing uh, uh in equity uh we think that's going to be very good we're so in, you'll raise a separate fund for that this separate year separate fund for that we're also uh expanding in life sciences mm-hmm. uh we think that that's a very interesting area with a very technical uh technically intensive uh, a group we, we purchased named Claris that does third stage trials, invests in that area, and actually does the trials right. for large pharma. So, so, what you do is you find something that, that isn't as correlated, um, that in, in, the, in the growth, growth uh, equity area, you know, it doesn't particularly use leverage, uh, where you're buying mature uh, companies in, the, in, in the, the tech area compared to the early stage things.
0: And so as you look around the world, one thing that's certainly on people's mind right now is Europe, uh, specifically Germany, specifically the, the banking sector there. What do you think is going to have you spent a lot of time in, in that part of the world? Deutsche Bank, front of mind. Where, where does this movie end?
4: Well, the movie for Germany is a pretty good movie. It's been a good movie uh, since the 1950s. Uh, and, and they grow slowly. They're, they're, they're the largest uh, country in Europe uh, the, the, the financial sector in Germany has always been uh, uh, some somewhat different than in other parts of the world uh, you know they have a lot of uh, smaller regional banks uh, and they've had not great luck uh, considering how good their economy is that their banking sector uh, hasn't hasn't performed as well and right now uh, you know, Deutsche Bank has been in the spotlight for uh, the last few years mm-hmm. in terms of uh, performance, and it's tough to manage a bank when everybody's looking at it and everybody's you know, uh, raising questions. Uh, uh, Germany needs a, a national champion. Every every European country believes that they they need a significant uh, uh, credit extender. Uh, right. Uh, And so
0: do you you think it's a public solution or a private sector solution that ultimately helps
4: save Deutsche Bank? I'm not a Deutsche Bank expert. (laughs) I I, I wish I were. Uh, So you're not going in there. We're not going in. It's hard to do due diligence
0: on a bank. What's your one big takeaway from China right now? You've invested there. You've done a lot of philanthropy there. What's the thing people are missing about China?
4: Well, China has stimulated its economy like they said they would when the tariffs went in. Uh, I was there four weeks ago, uh, the, the people at the central bank were telling me that worked very nicely, and, and now you're seeing the result of that, uh, which is surprised uh, some commentators that, that China's economy uh, looks pretty solid now uh, in the sixes, uh, 6% growth, uh, and, and I think that would have surprised some other people, it didn't particularly surprise me, they have the ability uh, in China uh to, to really force money uh into their system uh to, to, to create growth and, and they're they're doing it and it's been successful. And are you
0: putting more money uh into China at this point as Blackstone or are you investing more heavily and where?
4: Well we, we just bought a company there. Um I think I think China is a harder place to invest uh for outsiders. Yeah. Uh and you you, you always have to be uh prudent and thoughtful when you invest. Uh, we're looking uh, in the real estate area as well. Uh, and it, it all depends, you know, what happens and what values are right?
0: Uh Tim Geithner over the weekend was talking about the strength of the economy and this bull market that we've been in for a long time. And he said, the only thing we have to avoid is dumb mistakes, of course. Uh, what could be a dumb mistake that we collectively could make either from a policy decision or from a market decision?
4: Well, uh, I, I think there are a lot of mistakes you can always make. I think if, if there's a really dramatic uh, change in the uh, tax area, uh, if, the, if the Democrats win, for example, if, if a lot of the things that some of their candidates are talking about, I think that would be sort of a uh, disincentive. It could have a certain psychological shock value. Uh, and, and logic would say that would would slow an economy. Um, that's one of the things you could do.
1: That's Blackstone CEO Steve Schwartzman. You always want to talk to him. I mean, Jason, you have a great relationship with him. But again, when you think about Blackstone, the amount of money that they are managing, this is a big deal when it comes to the global financial industry.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because of the nature of their businesses, they invest so heavily in real estate, mm-hmm. in credit, in hedge funds, and of course, in private equity so they have a window into the economy that few have.
1: And I love that they say or we have said private equity is kind of the new hedge fund, right? I spoke with Walter Robb. He's the former Whole Foods co-CEO.
0: It was such a great conversation. You know him well. You talk cannabis, the meal kit business and of course his former company.
1: I got to talk to you about Whole Foods. A couple okay. of years since it's been sold from uh, uh, that Amazon bought it out. Yeah. Has it played out how you thought? Has it been a good combination?
7: Yeah, yeah, I think yes. I think on balance, yes. I think mean, look at the a large theme of digitizing whole foods and taking the physical offer that we developed over 40 years and bringing it in into the digital sphere I think the combination of the two the strengths of the two companies is realized through the joining with Prime now and I think you know any cultural combination takes time to really settle in values you know those sorts of things have to join together but on balance in the marketplace I think the Whole Foods continue to come forward through through the partnership with Amazon
1: you know I think about when you and I spent some time in Detroit when Whole yeah. Foods opened in Detroit and a yeah. lot of people were like it wasn't gonna work this was an odd market right you folks really are Whole. It's really embraced the citizens there, the culture there, right. and it's still working, correct?
7: It's just uh, celebrating. It's going to celebrate its sixth anniversary in June, and so it just, I mean, it's a, it was my proudest moment as a grocer, June 13, 2013, was when that store opened and uh, and you were there. So uh, I think, but it points to kind of this larger concern that is part of what's being discussed here at Milken, which is the tremendous disparities in, right. in the air. Food access is one area, but there's over 6,000 communities in America that don't have access to fresh healthy food like we enjoy and i think what detroit was an attempt to do was to say all right uh, that community deserves those same set of choices and so we're six years on and here we are
1: can we bring organics to the mass market in a, in a cost-efficient way that is really accessible to everybody?
7: Well, isn't that, that's the great question, is whether that can actually happen. So we've come to the pricing, the availability has increased tremendously over the last number of years. I think it's going to take more years to do that. But I think more sustainable food choices in general, not just organic, have accelerated big time into the marketplace. So I think we'll get there.
1: I want to ask you about, because you're a new company, you're investing in a lot of organic companies. You've also invested in a meal kit company. Yes, I have. We know with Blue Apron, it's not an easy business. Uh What do you think the future is of meal kit companies?
7: I think it's part of a You hesitated. I hesitate, <laughs> Not an easy yeah. market. Yeah, well, I'm not actually an investor in Blue Apron, but I'm Not a, Blue in, Apron, I'm an investor in a number of other small food companies I think represent the next generation of food. But I think for food meal kit companies, they are one choice in a litany of choices customers now have they didn't have five years ago. So we're seeing some limits on that in terms of A, the number of times people repeat, the churn rate, et cetera, the concern about packaging. Right. But where we combine the meal kit with a physical store in the case they plated, joined with Albertsons or Whole Foods is doing meal kits with Amazon. I think there the combination is more powerful.
1: Um, I'm also curious about the cannabis industry. About which? The cannabis Uh, industry. Um, And I believe you're on the board of one of the cannabis companies. Um, That, too, has been a bit of a volatile industry. Yeah. Do you see a time, Walter, where there are cannabis products in all supermarkets?
7: Well, you know, there's a haze of cannabis growth right now everywhere. I mean, it's CBD everywhere. CBD everything. So, you know, look, I think it's it's at least five years in the United States before this thing kind of lines up to where the banking system can get involved and, and it can really go end to end but I think there's some people in my natural food business that say they think it's bigger than natural foods. It's in the early innings. So, you know, there's a lot to recommend cannabis as a medical plant and its properties yet to be discovered and I think communicated. So I think there's real, real potential here. Again, we have the same questions around quality and standards. Right. It's kind of mixed right now.
1: Is that necessary? I mean, I think that's where we think about government intervention. Until we get that, is it hard for it to scale up?
7: I, I I think it's necessary to really hit the scale. I think there's just a lot of money, and it, it, this is global, by the way. It's not just Canada, the yeah. United States. It's global. So licenses are being done in different countries. But I think some sort of stakes in the ground around standards and quality for the customer to ultimately say we're going to go all the way with this, uh, I think is necessary.
1: Would you invest in a cannabis company?
7: Yes, I would. You would? I would. I, and I and I thought about that a lot before I would answer that question. But you know, actually, I've done look into the science of cannabis and the plant. Right. I understand all the mores around it. But I think but there's something really healing about. Parts of this, and my dad now is 92 years old, and he's taking cannabis gummies at night to help him sleep, and it's helping him. So when I see things like that, I say, all right, with the real, let's let's get the real part of it. But I think there's real potential here.
1: I got to ask you one last question because I think we look at retail overall, but the supermarket industry, like, where is it going? There's so many that are seem to be struggling. As you know, it's a low-margin business. Where do you ultimately see the supermarket
7: industry going? A massive change. In other words, I think the edge of it right now is with Huma in China. It's a complete physical-digital interaction and in, 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 in integration in a fantastic way. But I think we're going to see the future store is smaller. The center store is probably roboticized or uh, made autonomous. The fresh product is exploding. Uh, but you're going to see this confluence of choices that the customer today wants it in all sorts of different ways. So I think the stores are there. 70% of the business five years from now is still done in physical stores. But the customer today, particularly the millennial generation, wants to connect digitally, wants right. to be met on a pickup and all these different ways. So it's going to look very different than it looks today.
1: That's former Whole Foods Market co-CEO Walter Robb. And really, it's kind of interesting. You know, he's been in the supermarket industry for so long, lots of transformations. And right now, of course, he's focusing on investing in organic food companies. He thinks, ultimately, Jason, it's something we can bring to the masses.
0: What a thoughtful guy and a reminder and really a reminder that. Food was front and center. So many conversations about that uh, at Milken this year. It was really cool. So, Carol, while we were out at Milken, I caught up with a guy who's been called the Warren Buffett of Canada. That's Brookfield's Bruce Flat, a sprawling empire they have across world. Hundreds of billions of dollars, some very well-known real estate, in some big-name cities.
1: Sprawling empire, so you had to have a wide-ranging conversation, Jason, from infrastructure to Brookfield's acquisition of Oaktree.
0: I started by asking where we are in the economic cycle.
8: Look, for most of our businesses globally, and in particular here in the United States, everything feels pretty good. And uh, so there's no signs in front of us that we're going to have a recession, but no one should forget that we're 10 years into an economic recovery, and at some point there will be a recession.
0: And what do you make of this idea that, you know, maybe we're in the midst of sort of a melt up, you know, that people are just don't have any reasons to be negative.
8: So they keep buying and valuations go up and they're, you know, trees are growing uh, to the sky. So we buy real businesses. We don't uh, necessarily participate in the stock market. So I don't have a view on a melt up. What I'd say is that the. Real economy with real businesses is pretty constructive virtually everywhere in the world. In fact, some countries are still getting better, a few going backwards, but they're, they're pretty good.
0: So speaking of real, let's talk about real estate. You guys obviously a very big player in that
8: globally, uh, starting in the U.S. What do you make of the, especially the commercial real estate business? Look, the commercial market, similar to what we just talked about in the economy, the commercial market is strong. Office... Um, Vacancies, uh, occupancies, I think, are the highest they've ever been in most cities. Many cities globally are in the 1%, 2 3% range. And that's just from a big urbanization that's occurring globally. And that's, I don't think that's going to change. You right. may, you, it may ebb and flow, but I don't think it's going to change over the next 25 years. And so what does
0: that sort of secular shift mean for an investor like you? Does it change
8: where you invest, how you invest, what you build and where? Look, look for example, we've, had a, we've always had a big single family business in the United States, building single family homes in suburban markets. And many of the sites we're now approving is we're going into cities. Yeah. Part of our acquisition at GDP was we're using those sites to concentrate and build other uses, mixed use, residential and other things because cities are moving further in. People want to live in major groups of people.
0: So, speaking of acquisitions, we caught up earlier in our show with Howard Marks. You made an acquisition there as well, buying Oak Tree, agreeing to buy a majority of Oak Tree. What's next for for that deal? How do you go about sort of integrating?
8: Yeah, so um, the good news is we did a partnership, not an acquisition, which which means that we don't have to integrate anything. In fact, Howard, Bruce, and their management team are the best in the business. That's why we did a partnership with them, which means that we don't have to do anything. Yeah. In fact, they have to do all the hard work right. now. They got to run the place. Right. But uh, more said uh, more uh, positively. I just say um, we're excited about having them as part of the franchise. There's many things they can do for us, and we can do for them. But but the businesses are not yeah. going to be integrated. They're going to own 38% of it afterwards. We'll be 62, and we'll, we'll they'll run the business for us. And why credit?
0: At this point, you know, like why have why bring that platform on? Because it's something you haven't done
8: before. Look, I, look, we've done it sparingly, yeah. but we don't have a big business. They have a hundred billion dollar business. They're very good at what they do. Our clients increasingly want credit alongside the other products. And this was an efficient way to get it done with a best in class franchise. Yeah. Um, on top of that, at some point in time, the markets will turn and we will put our money and other things behind their franchise. And I think we can become really best in class. Let's talk a little bit about a business you're
0: deeply in, and that's infrastructure. There's a big meeting tomorrow in Washington. The president is convening some folks. Uh, He's going to talk to uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer, Senator Schumer, about infrastructure. It has been long awaited in the United States. I think anyone who's driven anywhere uh, in the United States or gone to any airport knows that there needs to be some investment. There hasn't been a lot as of yet. What do you think needs to happen and will happen when it comes to infrastructure in the United
8: States, first off? Look, I, I, inevitably all infrastructure is going to transfer into private hands. But um, until the point that governments are either stretched or, or um, reg, uh, governments and the individuals that run them are pushed, um, it's easier not to do it yeah. because people yell at you when they have to pay for the toll on the road that they didn't have to pay for. Um, so it's going to be slow in the OECD countries, but it's coming in eventually. And do you see a lot of opportunity
0: outside the United States for infrastructure and, and is there still an appetite for that investment?
8: Yeah look there's a lot of it, it, when I say this is it, the largest the largest business in the world is real estate. The second largest is the infrastructure that it's all built on. So these are enormous businesses, and when I say it's slow, there's still incredible amounts of infrastructure that are being privatized around the world. In fact, much, much more outside of the United States because it wasn't natural to get it paid for, and governments don't have the money, and therefore they're going, I'll call it skipping the step of government owning it, they're going right to private infrastructure, and, uh, and that's occurring today and, and increasingly around the world.
0: So when you look across your businesses, whether it's infrastructure or real estate or private equity, now credit uh, via the Oak Tree partnership, uh, what worries
8: you the most in, in 2019? Where are you seeing any warning signs? Look, there is no, um, we don't see big issues in the economy out there. Clearly um, valuations are higher than they were 10 years ago, seven years ago, five years ago, three years ago, a year ago in the stock markets. And interest rates um, look like they're going up, but they don't look like they're going up at the current time. Um, but those are the things out there that could disrupt the markets. When that happens, how it happens, um, that and political issues. But I'd say we, when we're investing into long businesses, you generally don't. As long as you pick good countries, you don't get too concerned about short-term governments. Last question for you. One of the political issues out there that
0: I know is in one of your backyards or front yards uh, is Brexit uh, going on there in the UK. Maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. You've been pretty clear that the
8: effect on your business has been de minimis so far. Still true? Yeah, look, I would say uh, most of our businesses in in the UK today are doing well, I think, longer term, the UK will still be a great place to invest. In the short term, there's no doubt this is disruptive and not helpful for business. But uh, like all countries, they will see it through.
0: That's Bruce Flat, the CEO of Brookfield Asset Management. Such a thoughtful guy, obviously right in the middle of big deals. You know, we talked about Steve Schwartzman right. earlier. One of the only real rivals that Blackstone has right now is Brookfield.
1: So, Jason, earlier in the broadcast, we heard from Bruce Flatt, who spoke to you at Milken, about why he thinks all infrastructure will eventually become privatized.
0: And so keeping up with that infrastructure theme, Carol, who better to talk to than U.S. Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao?
1: And we spoke about that very issue, paying for public infrastructure with private funds.
0: You started with the need to get more women into government. Here's that conversation.
1: You participated in a panel here at Milken, and it's all about more participation by women in government. Tell me about what still needs to be done. We've made great inroads in the last midterm elections, but still so much to be done.
5: Well, there are a lot of women in the executive branch, and there are also lots of women um, you know in uh, the federal state and local government. so I think it's good to have more diverse points of view because our reality is becoming more complex and more eyes and ears around the table that don't think the same, actually helps us all to be better at what we do
1: Well, but and we have made great progress what still needs to be done because women are still in the minority especially in the in the senior positions you are I think one of the rare individuals who's had two cabinet positions um, but we don't see that as a commonality what
5: do we need to do to see that more often that it becomes the norm well I believe in public service and I think that there's a proper role for government and um, you know, I think we need to get out to young girls at an earlier age and tell them about the many opportunities that are available, not just in one sector or another, but it's a constant kind of um, education process and um, to learn women know about the ability to make impact, uh, the obligation to serve your government. I think all of that uh, are all very important. Well, what about your own experience?
1: Have you ever felt? I mean, you're an immigrant who came from another country, really set up yourself,
5: established yourself. Have you ever felt pushback as a woman in Washington? Oh, of course. I think uh, I think all women have. You know, if you're just different, you're from the outside, it'll be difficult to go in any place. That's just life. And so I tell a lot of young people, men and women, uh, you know, just to develop their interest and to be brave and to be curious and to explore. I want to ask you about infrastructure, because Mm -hmm. I feel like
1: this is something both Republicans and Democrats agree we need to spend. I know at South by Southwest, you talked about an initiative to really speed the adoption of new technologies. Where are we going? Where is the president on this? Do you really have his ear to say, we got to do this?
5: Well, the president doesn't need me to remind him. The president feels very strongly about the need to address our infrastructure uh, state in our country. And the biggest problem is uh, how to pay for it. And the president has already said that everything's on the table. And infrastructure is one area where there should be bipartisan support. Uh, you know, Any long-term policy needs to be done on a bipartisan basis. And so we have said always, the president has said always, that infrastructure is a real priority and we need to um, talk about it. We submitted a bill last year, February 12th. And it didn't get enough uh,
1: votes. There's so So. much private money out there, whether it's private equity money that is ready to do private public
5: partnerships, they've got to be coming to Washington saying, let's do something. Well, there are public, uh, well, there are private pension funds Mm -hmm. as well as uh, endowment funds that would love the opportunity to invest in public infrastructure because they're looking for long-term investments uh, with collateral that won't walk away. And that's certainly a government project. So I hope that there will be greater interest and allowance by the private sector to come in because currently there are a number of states that disallow the private sector from investing in public infrastructure. And so we have to remove those hurdles and allow the private sector to come in because they are a tremendous source of capital. One last question I've
1: got to ask you because certainly the purview of the Boeing 737 fell under yes. you. The FAA were still waiting for a head to be approved. Um, the administration criticized for taking so long in grounding
5: it when other countries did. No, I don't did. think that's fair at all because uh, the FAA, who ultimately made the decision to ground the planes, the 737 MAXs, They are a very fact-based organization, and they needed to have facts before they can ground the planes. Because if you don't have a fact-based reason for grounding the planes, how would you explain ungrounding the planes? So we now have a number of uh, audits and investigations going on to see what happened to the certification of these two planes, which occurred, Uh, In uh, 2012 and 2013. Right. And then uh, we also, I have also set up a special blue ribbon committee to look at the certification process going forward. And then the FAA is waiting for the software fix from the company before it can obviously do anything. And I want to assure the flying public that safety is number one at the Department of Transportation. And that the FAA will not sign off on anything that they're not totally 100 percent satisfied.
1: That's Elaine Chao. So many things that she's dealing with infrastructure front and center. There was a lot of news about it this week. Uh, Possibly the potential of both sides of the aisle coming together on a big infrastructure plan. We'll see where that goes.
0: We will see indeed. And obviously Boeing remains Mm -hmm. a friend of mine for a lot of investors and consumers. We all fly on planes all the time. Well, the Department of Justice had a big presence at the Milken Institute Global Conference this year, Carol. We had a pair of interviews focusing on tech and security.
1: Yeah, definitely big themes. First up, I got the chance to sit down with the DOJ's Assistant Attorney General, Antitrust Division, Macon Delrahim. We started by talking about calls to break up big tech. So, Megan, let's talk about big tech. And what's funny is you and I were talking before. This is a second year where there's been a panel saying what's going to happen in big tech. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has called for a breakup of big technology. Where do you stand on this?
9: Well, we have uh, you know a certain number of standards of the antitrust laws, and we will look at you know every industry and apply the laws based on the facts and the evidence. I don't know if breaking up uh, any particular industry you know without having an actual investigation and showing they're they're doing competitive harm. Is the right approach for antitrust enforcement, but um, that's an area that you know antitrust enforcers should be looking at, and we certainly are.
1: And there's big technology, and then I feel like there's Amazon. There isn't any panel I do or any conversation I do that Amazon doesn't somehow come up in that conversation because there's such a bigger and bigger player, not only in retail, but so many other industries. Does Amazon, do you look at them as a different category?
9: Well, Amazon has been a disruptor in a lot of different sectors, and they have. Is that a played, good thing from your perspective? Uh, well, I think when you're a, when you're an initial disruptor and create more efficient products and services and lower the prices to consumers, that's always a positive thing. The problem becomes when you have market power and you take certain actions that might actually harm competition, which ultimately will harm consumers. And that's the type of conduct that we look at. As I've said before, you know, big itself is not bad, it's big behaving badly. Right. That becomes a problem for antitrust laws, and that's a, certainly an area that we would be, uh, you know, interested in.
1: Got to ask, Attorney General uh, William Barr has talked about them gaining or getting more information on big technology. Um, have you guys had discussions about big tech and maybe what needs to be done?
9: Well, uh, I won't comment about any private conversations I've had internally, but the Attorney General uh, you know, we're fortunate to have somebody with his background and his knowledge, and his as he said at his confirmation hearing, you know, uh, the role of antitrust and how some of the largest companies in our economy are uh, are interacting is something he wants to explore, and I think it's an important area. But he's somebody who, from his background, the last 25 years in the corporate world, is uniquely, uh, I think, not only qualified but really appreciates the role of antitrust law. He's been a plaintiff and a defendant uh, in the industry, and he's actually argued in the European Union before the Commission himself.
1: Does that make him more
9: sensitive to business aside, or...? I think somebody like him who, who you know appreciates uh, free markets, like me, and I think like most people in the antitrust world, is that it's our role is really to protect competition itself, it's not so much picking, you know, a business or one competitor over another or one technology. And I think it makes him sensitive and knowledgeable about the role of the free markets and ultimately the benefits of having a free market economy.
1: Right. Megan, I want to ask you about some different um, corporate situations. You met recently with T-Mobile's Don Ledger. Tell me about T-Mobile and Sprint. Was What was his message to you? What was your reaction?
9: Well, without commenting on a pending mergers, of course we've made and I think there's been some reports that we have had a, a meetings with the parties, which is very normal in a process. Right. And of course, you know, CEOs of merging companies will defend their merger and, and do that. And you know, uh, beyond that, it's it's a transaction that's under our review and it's ongoing uh, investigation that we're doing in the transaction. One thing that's come to mind. I've heard this
1: in discussions. Are you considering Sprint's struggling financial position in your decision making on this deal? Well, Sprint, and and, you know the argument that you know a failing firm, you know, maybe doesn't impact competition versus a stronger firm financially.
9: Well, ultimately, our goal is to make sure there is competition for the benefit of uh, consumers and innovation. And Sprint has been a great company; they have been an innovator and a disruptor on the price. Uh, They they have, you know, I think there's been reported they've raised the issue of what's called a flailing uh, company and whether or not. Under the antitrust laws, the laws recognize what's called a failing firm defense, and there's strict guidelines about that. And we certainly will apply the law and the facts that they present to us to that. Whether or not those standards are met, we'll have to wait and see for the conclusion of the investigation. But
1: it's definitely a consideration.
9: It is something we consider, absolutely. When parties raise that as an issue, it doesn't mean it always wins, but it's something we consider.
1: Okay. I want to also ask you about Fox's RSNs. Big Three has complained that Charter Communications and Liberty Media are really trying to kind of thwart its bid. Um, Ice Cube, Big Three, Basketball League, we've got Serena Williams, Snoop Dogg, they're all investors in this. Is that a a factor?
9: Well, uh, I've seen the reports of of the allegations of the issue, and there's been letters that have been sent to the division. it's a, you know, certainly when there's allegations of corruption of a bidding process at an auction, it's something that raises uh, issues for us to look into to see if there's actual credible evidence. Uh, and I don't know if there is one here yet, but it's something that uh, we always look at when the, you know, the free market process of right. bidding is corrupted. We, we just had a recent criminal investigation where a group of Korean companies had uh, corrupted and fixed prices in sales of fuel to the U.S. government in the Pentagon, and we had uh, we announced about five settlements and uh, not only criminally but civilly recovered in that. So it's an area that we we are concerned about.
1: There's a lot of areas that I know that you're looking at. The other thing I want to ask you about is generic drug companies. I know the Department of Justice has been investigating that um, price fixing by a group of generic drug companies. Where are we on this? Because there were some reports that your office has kind of declined to approve some new indictments in that case. Is that
9: is that accurate? That is not accurate. I have flatly denied those reports. Uh, you know, there's, you know, requests for opening grand juries and, you know, indictments that I review, and sometimes I send them back for additional information or investigation. But uh, as far as declining any indictments, uh, that is just not accurate. I can, I can confirm it's been a matter of public... Uh, record right. that we have a criminal investigation into the generic uh, pharmaceutical industry. We've had two plea agreements of two high-level executives of uh, one of the pharmaceutical companies, but it's a it's a broad investigation, looking at multiple products in an area where we have some of the most vulnerable clients right. and the elderly who buy these generic drugs. Do you anticipate more charges to come in this investigation? I would anticipate that. Soon? I don't know the, the process works itself. Uh, we don't have a particular timeline, but we're, you know, in the process of developing that. We've had some public filings in the private cases in, in Pennsylvania. So there's some information out there in the public record.
1: That's Macon Rahim He's the assistant attorney general for the DOJ's antitrust division.
0: Great conversation. Obviously, very timely. Mm-hmm. He is in the midst of some decisions that really will alter potentially the course of how we consume telecommunications, right. media, and whatnot. He wasn't the only member of the Department of Justice that we spoke with out at Milken. Carol John Demers, the DOJ's Assistant Attorney General of National Security, he was also
7: on hand.
1: So John, great to have you here with us. You are participating at Milken in a couple of panels on national security threats. Yes. What are the biggest threats to the United States right now?
10: So I'm here to talk specifically about Chinese economic espionage. And talk to the business leaders, talk to the investment leaders about threat to their business to their investments posed by the theft of intellectual property sponsored by the chinese government
0: and so what does that threat look like to the average person the average business person what should they be worried about
10: so it looks like it's a combination sometimes it's a cyber threat very often it's an insider threat and sometimes it's a combination of both so the chinese are using their intelligence services to go after and try to co opt insiders and in companies the way they might use their intelligence services to, you know, traditional spy craft, right? So, what it looks like from the inside could be someone who works at your company, who's downloading data on a thumb drive, who's taking pictures of a screen that has data on it, somehow taking that technology and then sending it over to China all as part of this rob, replicate, and replace approach to economic development. You rob the intellectual property of an American company, you replicate that product in China, and you re- then you replace the American company on the global market eventually if all goes well. So for the American worker, then you lose your job at step three.
1: How often is this happening? And I'm always curious about what kind of companies, John, are being targeted.
10: So it's happening increasingly. It's a very top-down approach. We've had a number of cases recently on everything from... Uh, commercial jet engine technology to BPA-free linings in soda containers and cans, and they're all uh, priorities set by the Chinese government as part of their Made in China 2025 plan.
0: And so as you talk to executives in the C-suite and on down, are they worried enough about this? in your estimation?
10: I do think, increasingly so worried about it, recognizing it and realizing they really have to confront this. And realizing it's really a combination of cyber defenses, but also being aware of who you have working at the company and what they might be doing on the computer. Are they accessing data that they don't really need to have? Are they downloading data that they don't need to download? Are they in the office at strange hours when no one else is around,
0: all of that? And how much do you run into resistance from the perspective of a business saying, look, China's a really important customer, or China's a really important market, or Mm -hmm. I've got a partnership with a company there, I don't want to jeopardize these things by going overboard. So
10: I think you can't go overboard. We're not saying don't do business in China. You have to do business in China if that's uh, your uh, company. But the key is doing business smartly in China, recognizing the risks, and then mitigating them. So what data do you put in China? what data is accessible uh, from China. That's part of how you can mitigate that risk. So it's not, you know, yes, do business in China, just do it smart.
1: That's John Demers, Assistant Attorney General of National Security. And I think it's such a timely conversation, especially with U.S.-China trade talks continuing. The U.S. is looking very closely at Chinese state actors and their penetration of U.S. companies and IP. What kind of uh, U.S. IP is at risk?
0: A lot of eyes on that, for sure. It's not an easy issue to Mm -hmm. untangle.
1: And that wraps up Bloomberg Business
0: Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast. Download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com.
1: You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It is on newsstands now.
0: We'll be back right here next week at the same time.
1: This is Bloomberg.